I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To our new listeners, welcome. To our old listeners, welcome back. Another episode of Magical Education awaits you. But first, we would like to say a few words. Nitwit, blubber, oddment, tweak. Podcast nine and three quarters topic of the week is... How are female villains represented in Harry Potter? Hello listeners, I'm Rhea, and today I'll be talking about Dolores Umbridge. And I'm Jem, and today I'll be talking about Queenie Goldstein. Let's go, girls. (laughs) I'm excited. Yeah? (laughs) As some of our listeners might remember, we've already done an episode on um, masculine heroes in Harry Potter, talking about Mm -hmm. Harry Potter and Newt Scamander, respectively. So I thought it would be good to flip the tables, or have the turntables, and talk about Lady bad guys bad girls mm. we've <laughs> yeah. turned this into a mini series now we're gonna have to look at masculine heroes no wait masculine villains and feminine heroes <laughs> <laughs> i fully want to talk about how women are represented in harry potter in every facet because like yeah. it's so important <laughs> and men as well um <laughs> as an because, afterthought yeah. <laughs> oh yes, the men. <laughs> oh yeah, also men. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I love talking about men. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the ladies. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I bet you're excited about that, Ria. Yes, oh. I am. Although these are two of my least favorite ladies in the series. <laughs> yeah. They're quite interesting. Um, so I sort of, I don't know how you started this, but I started this with um, defining what a female villain was. Okay. I started with yeah. just some general feminine traits. I didn't specifically look at what a female villain is. Oh, maybe let's start with your feminine traits then. Okay. Same as last episode when I just pulled a list of masculine traits from Wikipedia. <laughs> I just grabbed this list. We can agree or disagree with any of them. And I've clumped a bunch together because they're basically the same thing. Uh, so gentleness and sweetness. Of course. <laughs> I can expect that Empath- most of them are just going to be like the same sort of words for the same sort of behavior of kindness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These like- were four separate ones, but I clumped them together. Empathy, caring, compassion, sensitivity. I'm like, that's the same thing. <laughs> Basically. You just said the same thing four times. The next one's basically the same as well. Tolerance is another one. It's like the same as empathy, but slightly different. Yeah. Uh, nurturing, uh, deference and succorance, which was a word I didn't know and had to look up, but apparently it means uh, dependence slash actively seeking out nurturing. So <laughs> not only okay. are you a nurturer, if you're feminine, you're actively trying to be nurtured as well. 
great. Okay, and uh, real quick, what does deference mean? Because I definitely do not know what deference means. <laughs> uh, deference means that you're deferring to somebody else. So somebody else is in uh, okay. more of a position of power and authority and you're following their lead, basically. You're the sub. Okay, all right. Yeah. The last one was sexual passivity. Of course. <laughs> Here it comes. Great, awesome. <laughs> and then um, there was also a section on, like, feminine beauty standards, but they're very different in different parts of the world, so I didn't really want to go into yeah. that too much. I just put the color pink, because that very <laughs> clearly applies to both of our characters. I'm like, that's just... In terms of feminine beauty, let's just throw in the color pink and call it a day. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about feminine beauty in terms of Western feminine beauty, because both the characters that we're talking about are white women living in uh, Western contexts. So Yeah, we definitely can. Yeah. Those sort of standards, like, everyone's familiar with them. If you've ever seen any movie ever, it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, skinny, the end. <laughs> That's yeah. the standard um, for Western feminine beauty. <laughs> yeah. More specifically, stuff like uh, long hair, makeup, you mm. want, like, big eyes like you're a baby, uh, small nose, yeah. red, pouty sort of lips, uh, thin waist, big breasts. <laughs> You know, mm. the the beauty yeah. standards. We all know them. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. That's the, the look. Yes. They're not too sexy, basically. Very sexy in terms of like an object, but not sexually mm. available except to just exclusively me. That's what you want. Yes. That's the that's the exact Western feminine beauty ideal. <laughs> yeah. A sexual okay. object who's only available to the specific man that is objectifying her. Not mm. to all men in general. Or women. Because <laughs> that's bad. That's bad feminine sexuality. <laughs> oh, and not women at all, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Or herself, you know. <laughs> or Whatever. herself, no. No, yeah. no. She's too sexually passive for that. Yeah. <laughs> God, this is going to be a fun episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked more into female villainy, and I mm -hmm. also went on Wikipedia and I found this uh, mm -hmm. quote about uh, supervillains, female supervillains, and it said, they are a counterpart to the superheroine, just as the villain is the counterpart to the hero. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then I, this is my notes from now on, like most of the types of women in literature, cinema, art, female villains are either attractive or ugly. So yeah. I've sort of split my female villains into categories based on this defining trait of attractive or ugly. Attractive female villains. Now, I use the word attractive and not beautiful for a reason. In art, media, uh, beautiful women are graceful, soft heroines, whereas female villains are allowed to exhibit their attractiveness in a way that is banned for good women. Evil women can be sexy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first one is one that everyone would probably be familiar with, the femme fatale, the fatal woman. Mm -hmm. And while I was actually looking up femme fatales, I came across the worst take ever. Get ready for this one, guys. It's the film <laughs> fatale, the fatal girl, which is the same as a femme fatale, but a child. And I literally vomited him to my own mouth. I was like, Whoa! Sorry, That's what, what, is that, what does that mean? It means that it's the same as a femme fatale, so all like using sex as a weapon, but for a child. Like, it's the same thing. And I hate it so much. But that... But, but that's a child. I know. Children don't use sex as a weapon. <laughs> What's happening? No. The Phil Fatale, when I first that's... read Phil Fatale, I assumed it was like scary little girl ghost sort of genre. But no, it's talking about uh, Lolita types and situations in which um, there's like a, a student teacher affair dynamic and things like that. And I'm like, I hate this so much. Anyway, I was like, <laughs> 
I don't. I don't even want to talk about that anymore. That's so wrong. I'm. Oh my god. Time to take another angry drink of water. Okay. It's the worst take ever. Anyway. Um. So Femme Fatale's the Fatal Woman. Yep. She tries to achieve her hidden purpose by using feminine wiles such as beauty, charm, or sexual allure. She can also use lies mm-hmm. or coercion, and may also have some kind of subduing weapon like a sleeping gas or an enchantment, which she uses to ensnare men. This is one of my favorite <laughs> quotes ever in the history of literature, and I want it on a t-shirt. The femme fatale rejects motherhood. This is seen as one of her most threatening qualities, since by denying his immortality and posterity, it leads to the ultimate destruction of the male. What a mood. (laughs) (laughs) I want all my actions to lead to the ultimate destruction of the male. Rejecting motherhood leads to the ultimate destruction of the male. That's fantastic. I love it. Femme fatales are typically villainous, or at least morally grey, and always associated with a sense of mystification and unease. So, femme fatales Mm -hmm. ultimately represent uh, the masculine fear of female sexuality as it grants women power over them and choice to live outside of male control. So, you know, Lilith is your first femme fatale (laughs) in Western literature. (laughs) Adam's first wife. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> like the very first femme fatale way back <laughs> way back for all those um bible fans uh <laughs> bible fans Goals, anyway <laughs> so, any fans of the bible up there? do those guys have a name now we just call them bible fans <laughs> jesus stands um so <laughs> I had a list of um, some examples of femme fatales, and basically almost every female comic book villain fits into this category. You got Poison Ivy using her, <laughs> like, poisonous kisses to manipulate men. You got Catwoman, Mystique. Yep. Um, some other ones I wrote down were Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. I think she fits uh, quite mm-hmm. interestingly into that mold. Marjorie Terrell from Game of Thrones. Um, Catherine Trammell. Yep. And Regina George. I think Regina George, I hesitated to put her in this one, but then I was like, because she uses uh, lies and coercion. I'm like, oh, wait, that's in the definition too. It's not just sexual stuff. <laughs> Although she does use that too. Um. <laughs> we mostly see, we mo- she does definitely use lies and coercion to gain power over men, but we mostly mm-hmm. see her getting Using power over, over women. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Regina George is interesting as a femme fatale. Because her story's mostly framed through how she interacts with other women. Yeah. So then that was my main sort of take on attractive female villains, because most attractive female villains will fit into the femme fatale mold. So then I looked at ugly female villains. Mm-hmm. So basically the most classic fairy tale version is the hag, the old yep. evil witches. Uh, and interestingly, sometimes the femme fatale takes on the persona of a hag to trick someone as like an ultimate disguise. Uh, the ageist and anti-Semitic coatings of hags cannot be ignored. Like, they've got wrinkled skin, grey hair, they're usually balding, hunchbacked, large-nosed, thick eyebrows. Closely asso- associated with dark witches. forms of magic. Yeah, they're witches. And not mm-hmm. just, like, you know, a simple love spell enchantment. They're associated with dark magic, like animal or human sacrifice, cannibalism, curses. They're- stealing children, that sort of thing. Yeah, and the stealing children thing's important to note, because I argue that hags are unwomen. So when you come across women in culture and society, there's women and unwomen. Women fit into the molds that we expect mm-hmm. them to and that we want them to, and anyone against that is an unwoman. If a man acts like um, in ways associated with femininity, then he's considered weak. 
if a woman acts in ways associated yeah. with masculinity, she's not necessarily considered an unwoman. She's considered strong, but also wrong. And so she's an unwoman in that way because she's not acting like a woman. It really mm. depends how masculine. If you're like, you know, an attractive woman who's, you know, strong and independent and assertive, those are masculine qualities mm. that you can have and still be attractive to men. But if you're a woman who like dresses in man's clothes and behaves in a very masculine way and like is basically like a butch lesbian sort of thing, yeah. that's very much condemned. That's that's an unwoman mm. if you're doing that. Yeah. So back to hags. According to folklore, the hag was like a Mara or a succubus appearing sitting on your chest, weighing you down and giving you nightmares. Uh, now we know that this is, this is sleep paralysis, mm-hmm. but back in the old days, people were hag-ridden if they exhibited these symptoms. I just thought that was an interesting little fact. So some of the examples I had was uh, Ursula from Little Mermaid, the evil queen from Snow White. Oh, I love her. The original Wicked Witch of the West mm-hmm. who like sets the standard for all hags everywhere. The witch from Hansel and Gretel and Beauty and the Beast Enchantress, I think. Neatly fit into those stereotypes. Notice yeah. they're all from like fucking Disney movies. <laughs> like, they're all so classic. <laughs> they're all witches as well. All witches and enchantresses. Yeah, the hag is very closely associated with having magical power and using it for dark intent always. So then I, I came across a challenge because I had this idea of another kind of non-attractive female villain and I couldn't find the right – like I couldn't find an existing stereotype to define her. Okay. So, um, yeah. I, I've had a point that I've wanted to make for a little while, so I might jump in here before you go into this. Okay, sure. Uh, when you started talking about female villains in terms of whether they're attractive or not, mm. I started thinking like back to the, the way old – concept of the maiden the mother and the crone and the slut how well that fits in yeah no like just the three. <laughs> oh, right you're thinking of game of thrones because sorry yeah <laughs> no i'm not thinking of game of thrones what are you talking about the, the gods and game of thrones the maiden the mother and the crone no the gods and game of thrones <laughs> do you are you not familiar with the concept of the maiden the mother and the crone i am familiar with it outside of game of thrones but it also exists in game of thrones so i thought you were referring specifically to that cultural yeah part. okay no, I was talking to like like the idea of those three women who exist and they're usually all witches. Right, okay. Right. Like so. the archetype, that's the word. The archetype of um the woman fits either into maiden mother or crone. Yeah, definitely. So you have yeah, the young um beautiful attractive sexually available woman, the woman who is a mother, so she's like a good pure woman but she has no sort of sexual quality to her because she's filling a nurturing sort of role yes and then you have the other woman who's old not sexually available nasty and evil and will eat your children <laughs> so is this third villain that you're going for that has sort of no sexual presence to her like a mother type figure actually interestingly it is but not um not in the classical way the term mm. i've used to describe this third category is gone man with power. And you can uh, challenge me on this term. So I've put down that okay. the gone man with power woman can be attractive, but are usually not. They're almost always depicted as a middle-aged or an older woman. So that kind of fits into the mother thing. They're definitely still mm-hmm. unwomen, but not for the same reasons as the hag. They may have the traditional feminine qualities, such as a domestic knack or children or wearing dresses, etc. However, they demonstrate a unique trope when they're in a position of power, which is they are stripped of all empathy. Now, empathy, as we discussed, is one of the core feminine traits. So why I call this trope Mm -hmm. gone man with power is because traditionally the ones who wielded power were men. 
and thus these women feel the need to emulate male power in their positions in order to be taken seriously and treated with legitimacy. So I was thinking of, um, this is especially true for women in political positions or diplomatic positions. So there was a quote about Margaret Thatcher when she was in office and often um, in meetings, she was described as the strongest man in the room. Right. And so it's always the talk of women have to, women have to sacrifice their femininity in order to be respected in worlds of high politics and business, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The woman gone man with power purposely smothers their own traditional feminine qualities, such as compassion, kindness, displays of emotion and nurturing to enact a cold domineering power. So yes, she may be a stay at home mom, but she doesn't care for her children. She, the home becomes her kingdom of order in which she does labor to physically demonstrate her control of the space or else orders around and oppresses the help and is the madam of the house. Perhaps she is the only woman in, in the militia and is the most ruthless and cutthroat of the soldiers. Perhaps she wears skirts and high heels to work, but is willing to go further and to be more formidable than anyone else in the job in order to get the job done, regardless of who gets hurt. So some of the examples I had was Nurse Ratched from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland, Off With Their Heads, Cersei from Game of Thrones, especially Mm -hmm. in the later seasons, once she's lost her kids and is just willing to fuck everyone over just to be the last one alive, and Anne Dugan from Misery. Even though she doesn't get a position of power in a career sense, she gets a position of power over her most beloved author that she cares for, and that kind of makes her go a bit crazy, <laughs> and she abuses that power. So, yeah. yeah, what do you think about that? That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so the idea that I was talking about of the maiden, the mother, and the crone, those are all supposed to be, like, good archetypes yeah. of femininity, yeah. like- Girls are supposed to grow up to be maidens and then mothers and then they become crones and they're all supposed to be good. So the, I guess the villainous version of that is like you said earlier, the slut, uh, the hag for the crone. And then I guess I don't have a word for the mother, um, but I guess someone like a a middle-aged woman who is specifically not nurturing. The bitch. Yeah, the bitch is a good one. Um, like choosing to put something else ahead of children, like either she has children, but she doesn't care for them, like maybe a sort of stepmother, mm. like from Disney type things, yes. like a wicked stepmother, or she's someone in a more modern sense who's choosing to have a career rather than children. And that's the evil version of the mother, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you can definitely draw the parallel to like the stepmother from Cinderella. Like she has her own stepdaughters, but she doesn't care about them beyond selling them off for marriage. And she has Cinderella, but she does not give a shit about Cinderella. And she very much domineers over the household. Mm-hmm. So even though she fulfills the traditional role of being a mother and a, a homebody and like a lady, she's still an authoritarian <laughs> in her own way. You compare that to like like Cinderella's mother who loved her and loved her husband but tragically died. Yes. And then the stepmother comes in, doesn't love the husband, married him for power, um, enslaves one daughter and is cruel to the other two and all about getting them married to the most powerful man in the land. Mm. Yeah, definitely. She fits that, like, evil mother, the bitch, as we're going to yeah. call her. Slut, bitch, and hag. Yeah, very much so. What do you think of the title, Gone Man with Power? I just, like, thought that was really well done. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to I had to pay attention the first couple of times, because you're not saying gone mad yeah. with power, you're saying gone man yeah. with power, yeah, right? they're purposely suppressing their own femininity yeah. to fit into a masculine world. I love it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I just <laughs> we can put that on a t-shirt because it's our original content. I just really noticed that there was <laughs> like there wasn't much discourse about middle-aged female villains who were not conventionally attractive, like Nurse Ratched and Misery 
it's mm-hmm. like that. And I just was like, <sighs> like Umbridge. Um, yeah, I definitely argue that she's a god man with power sort of villain. But I'll leave that to you if you want mm. to start talking about Umbridge. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I wanted to talk about Umbridge in this like villainous feminine episode. Some other female villains we could have done are like Bellatrix mm. or something, but. I've always had this idea in my head that Umbridge is a very feminine person. Mm. And it wasn't until I actually looked up the traits for like the traditionally feminine traits that I just listed, all this tolerance, nurturing stuff that I'm like, actually, Umbridge doesn't, none of those apply to Umbridge. I know, it's funny, huh? <laughs> so it actually, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. yeah. So when I was doing my research on Umbridge, I found this quote that I really liked. Umbridge is a vindictive, spiteful, petty, sadistic woman who uses a cloak of girlish femininity in order to disguise her deep-rooted nastiness. Yeah, that's the end of the quote. (laughs) For some reason, I'm bad at ending quotes. I always, like, pause mid-sentence if I'm about to continue talking. (laughs) Then I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a perfect quote to describe her. Is that from JK or from someone else? No, that's from... uh, a blog called like Joe writes things or something. I'll link it. I guess it's because this idea that she's wrapping herself in a cloak of traditional femininity of the traits that I've listed there. The only one that I think really applies to her aside from the color pink (laughs) is that first one, the gentleness and Mm. sweetness and not because she actually is gentle and sweet, but because she often puts on this big show of being really gentle and sweet as a way to hide how, truly awful she is underneath. She's pretty much always described as girlish. JK often mentions that she has a very high-pitched voice. She's always dressed entirely in pink. There's her whole thing where she's, like, obsessed with cats and collects those kitten plate things that she lines her office with. Um, Cats are very associated with femininity and females as well. the most fuckable of pets, that's why. Do I need to explain that more? (laughs) The most fuckable of pets. Ugh. I mean, that's bad. Why did you say that? <laughs> I say that in terms of dogs are seen as man's best friend and cats are the opposite of dogs. And because cats are the opposite of dogs in behavior, dogs are loyal and loving and great. The reason why people hate cats is because of internalized misogyny, because cats don't often expect to what that yeah. cats don't behave in the ways that we want them to. They're not like dogs. And because cats are sexualized throughout the media yeah. all the time. Cats don't behave. Like, like, you know, Catwoman, like any cat in the Disney movie is usually drawn to be like sort of pretty and like handsome and sexy. It's weird. Cats are ultra sexualized. They're seen as the opposite of dogs, which dogs represent men. So therefore hating cats means you're, you're a misogynist and you can quote me on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cats are evil. Cats are distant. Cats don't really love you. Cats will try and eat your baby's face. All of this stuff is what we say about women. <laughs> They're like hags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're associated with witches as well. Witches, familiars. Yeah, cats are evil. <laughs> yeah, Umbridge likes cats. Yeah, so she's got like this like clear preference for this like traditionally girly aesthetic. But underneath it all, like she's just she's awful. She's such a sadist. She's got all these deep rooted prejudices. She doesn't have any empathy for anyone. She's ruthless. She's cruel. So she's not really all that feminine, so I kind of don't have many points to make about it, because I was kind of like, well, my initial impression was wrong, and I have no more well, notes. Well, I mean, it's only if you're looking from the traditional <laughs> standpoint of what femininity is that it might be a struggle to 
uh, understand Umbridge. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Umbridge, like you said, is presented as this very girlish, uh, cute uh, cloak over her evilness. I think what's interesting mm-hmm. is that that makes her evilness worse because there's there's two assumptions here. There's the first yeah. assumption that, you know, anything that looks girlish is innocent and must be protected. And then, then so she subverts that assumption by being evil and horrible. But then there's a second assumption, which is that society hates girls mm-hmm. and has always hated girls. They hate the things that they like. They hate the music they listen yeah. to, the stupid things they wear and the stupid things they say. And by the way, if you're a teenage girl and you're listening to this, I urge you to fight against that at every opportunity that you can, because you are valid and what you like is good and valid. And you don't need to take shit from anyone just because you drink a pumpkin spice latte and enjoy it. I'm going to go on a rant about that later. But anyway, so <laughs> the fact that Umbridge is coded yeah. like this, it sort of adds to the um, abuse that you can throw at her. It's like, oh, she's such a little girly with all her frilly pink stuff. And it's just another another lash to the cat of nine tails that you can add to hating on umbridge because she's so girly Mm -hmm. yeah i think definitely both work like part of why she rankles so much as a as a villain as a character is all of that traditionally feminine stuff that we are programmed from childhood Mm. to hate and look Mm. down on i don't think umbridge would be as loathed a character if she like had more of a mcgonagall Mm. sort of aesthetic to her if she was just a very stern like disciplinarian sort of person who like also had this evil sadistic side and was a villain in the story, but presented herself as like, I'm, you know, what, who's that person? Super nanny is the person (laughs) I'm picturing in my head. Like the very severe dressed all in black, tight bun, Mm -hmm. that sort of person. So yeah, if the whole pinkness and the high pitched feminine voice and the, the giggle, I forgot she does the giggle as well. Oh God. It makes your skin crawl. But uh, the first thing that you said as well, the idea that we are supposed to associate all of that feminine girly stuff with innocence as well, she's definitely using that to her advantage. So we know that she's the senior undersecretary Mm -hmm. to the minister and she rose to that position of power because the longer Cornelius Fudge was in power the more paranoid he got about people plotting against him and people trying to usurp him. So the fact that his senior undersecretary is this this feminine woman with a high-pitched voice and her ridiculous pink outfit that she wears everywhere, like, that's a very deliberate choice because he obviously doesn't mm. feel threatened by her. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's very villainous that she's able to... Yeah, she's able to put herself in this position of power purely through her presentation and not at all... Because of, like, what's underneath. Oh, God, I didn't phrase that well. She put herself in that position purely for how that she presents herself and not for her inner attributes and morals. Is that better? Yes. That's what I mean. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Like, I remember reading something recently. I don't know if it was true, but someone had said something about how Umbridge didn't start uh, putting up cat dishes in her office and dressing excessively in pink until she got a very senior position in the ministry, which made sense to me because like, as we know from women in our society, when they get to high ranking positions and powers like that, they have to suppress their femininity, as I said before. So I was interested in Umbridge yeah. in that way of like, is visiting society different? Because, you know, like you said, she's senior undersecretary. And I always assumed that she'd always been presenting like that. She'd always been presenting as pink and frilly and girlish. And I was so interested to see how she got there with that into that very powerful and prominent position. 
unless she was considered like some kind of glorified mm-hmm. secretary, but she wasn't. She was given powers at Hogwarts that other people wouldn't have been given because of the trust that was cultivated between her and Cornelius. Yeah. As you mentioned, because Fudge wasn't threatened by her. Yeah, she basically had mm. Fudge at her beck and call. Like, she was getting those educational decrees or proclamations or whatever written, like, constantly. Just whenever mm. she needed something done, she'd just send a letter off to the minister and he'd be like, yep, you now have the authority to fire people yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Do you reckon Fudge ever knew that mm. she was using methods of torture? on the students or being extremely oppressive in her decrees and things like that? Or do you reckon he just sort of stamped them off and went, you know, I trust Umbridge to do what I want her to do and she won't go too far with it? I would lean more towards the latter. What Fudge does and doesn't know Mm. is a great question. Because, like, is he just stupid or (laughs) is he aware of what's going on around him but choosing not to see it? Because seeing it means relinquishing Mm. some sort of power. That's a good question, and we should probably do an episode on Fudge and, like, what the hell was he thinking? (laughs) In terms of Umbridge, I think he probably knew that she had a bit of a cruel streak, and he knew that she was going further than what other Mm. teachers would. But I think in his head, he's like, you know, she has self-control. She's not going to use the Cruciatus curse on students, even though she was willing to. Yeah, if she cuts someone's hand open- Like, obviously that's awful and I wouldn't want it to happen, but it would probably be because Mm. the kid deserved it. Like, that's the way that he's rationalizing it in his head. And I think in his head as well, like, it's kind of a good thing because she's trying to suppress Harry Potter, who, aside from Dumbledore, is, like, the biggest threat to me Mm. right now. And I think Fudge has the comfort of being Mm. like, I also never said in any educational decree that umbridge had that power of a students to torture them so if it ever comes up that a parent like calls the ministry in distress and makes a big fuss about it then i can just point them off on umbridge and say it was her fault and that she went too far so he has that benefit yeah mm. just be like yeah she had permission to punish the students and obviously she interpreted that in a different mm. way to how i did and plausible yeah. deniability blah 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 yeah, enough about Fudge, though. So, in terms of Dumbledore, uh, not Dumbledore, in terms of Umbridge and feminine traits, I'm just going to go through them quickly. Um, like I said, she puts on that show of gentleness and sweetness to appear innocent, but she's not gentle or sweet mm. deep down at all. Um, she's definitely not nurturing. She literally tortures the children. I would say she's more yes. like authoritarian, yes. cruel, <laughs> sadistic, bad. Uh, she's not empathetic. So she, like, actively delights in mm. Trelawney's pain and humiliation when she's trying, when she fires Professor Trelawney and tries to kick her out of Hogwarts in this big show in front yeah. of everyone. Like, she's living for that. That's her so at awful. her peak power Gosh. before Dumbledore comes in and wrecks it. Yeah. And when in the seventh book, when she comes back and she's accusing Muggleborns of stealing magic, mm, she loves yes. having that power over people and making them afraid of her. Yeah. yeah. She's not tolerant. In fact, one of her defining character traits mm. is intolerance. <laughs> she's very intolerant of half-breeds. There's stuff like she writes laws to make sure that uh, werewolves can't get jobs, which mm. is a whole thing in the book which is Snape's fault as well, and always a chance to drag (laughs) Snape. (laughs) Fuck Snape. And uh, she wears pink all the time. I don't know if she's sexually passive. I have no (laughs) thoughts in my head about that at all. Don't don't at me. I don't want to (laughs) know. The end. (laughs) Don't tell me. 
God, JK is going to be like, no, she was actually a power bonner. I'm assuming like, what? Ugh, I don't want to hear about it. Anyway. um, Oh my God. <laughs> don't, don't say the words power bottom and umbrage in the same sentence around um, me. I don't want to hear that. Just there is in my head, there is a Venn diagram. One circle is like sexual thoughts about fictional characters. And another big circle is Dolores Umbridge and they don't meet. There's no intersection. Uh. There's no cross. I yeah. don't want to know. There's nothing. I think what's funny about Umbridge is that, you know, she's not the main villain in the series, and she's certainly not the villain that's at complete odds with Harry, even though she is at times. Like, that's Voldemort's role. That's what Voldemort's meant to be doing. But uh, what I think is funny is that in terms of the fan mm. reactions and the way that Umbridge has been received, she's certainly the most hated villain. People can create yeah. sympathy with Voldemort and they can see where he's coming from because we know about his past. With Umbridge, we don't know how she got to be the, the way that she is. All we know about Umbridge's past is that she was sort of into Slytherin, right? I don't think we learned anything else about what she was like as a child, mm-hmm. her familial situation, to be able to gleam as to why she's so sadistic and intolerant yeah. and lacking empathy. Definitely not in the series. Like, there is that information out there if you want to go onto, like, Pottermore and mm. research her as a character. But yeah, we know way more about Voldemort and we know way more about what happened to make him the person that he is. Umbridge just appears out of nowhere and is awful and remains awful and doesn't get any better. And that's the end. I mean, that's fine because she's not a main villain. Oh yeah, that's great. She doesn't need character growth or anything. Mm -hmm. She's there as an obstacle. And actually, like, one of the things that I like about her as a character is, like, she has really strong beliefs and she has really strong character traits and she's consistent in those. She's not, like, a villain that, you know, is strong and powerful when it makes sense for the story and is weak and stupid when it makes sense for the story just as a way for the have the heroes to defeat her. Like, she has clear weaknesses, which is her small-mindedness, and she always underestimates people because yeah. she is so power-hungry. And, like, that's consistent throughout her the entire time. This is just, like, here's my things I yeah. like about Umbridge moment. <laughs> but, yeah, in terms of, like, why she's so hated, I've got a quote here. Stephen King said that Umbridge is the greatest make-believe villain to come along since Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Love that. That's Wow. <laughs> putting, putting her in the same category as a cannibal. And I love that because Stephen King writes some really good villains. Like, he wrote Anne from Misery, who I listed as one of my oh, yeah. villains before. He wrote Jack from The Shining, who, uh-huh. let's be face it, that's just what men are like. And then he wrote, like, Cujo and stuff like that. He's a real sympathetic villain. <laughs> Pennywise. Like, the the reason why people are afraid of clowns is because yeah. of Pennywise. <laughs> that's an exaggeration. Talk to me about my theories on clowns. Anyway... Uh, and J.K. Rowling said about Umbridge, her desire to control, to punish, and to inflict pain, all in the name of law and order, are, I think, every bit as reprehensible as Lord Voldemort's unvarnished espousal of evil. So J.K. Yeah. said that she's just as bad as Voldemort. Yeah. I kind of agree. I think the reason why people hate Umbridge more than Voldemort is that Umbridge is more, not intimate, that's not the right word. Close to home. Close to home. Yeah, when I see Umbridge, I see specific Mm. teachers that I had at school. I see traits in bosses that I've had that I didn't like. Umbridge is a villain that I've met in my actual life that I've had to deal with. Voldemort is more of a villain like- Hitler. Hitler. Like, before Trump came along, I would have said- Before Trump happened, and I don't want to get too political, but 
before he came along and became an actual thing that was happening yeah. and that we had to deal with in reality, I was like, I'm never going to actually have to meet someone like Voldemort. Voldemort's not a real person in my life. He's like a Hitler who did awful things, but isn't around anymore and we don't have to personally deal with him. Now Trump's here and it's like, oh God, Voldemort's happening. I mean, let's be real, Trump's too dumb to be Voldemort. <laughs> yeah, like just in terms of in terms of pure evil and in terms okay. of effect on the world and how much damage he's doing, I'm putting him in <laughs> the same enough. category as Voldemort <laughs> and Hitler. But in terms of like people that I'm going to encounter in the street, Umbridge is more the sort of person who I'm going to have to yeah. actually deal with. Definitely. And that's why I think people I, hate I her more. I completely agree. And also because we hate women more than men. Of course. That's always an element to consider. But I completely agree. I've definitely met some umbrages in my life. And, oh, they really just, they really grate you gears. <laughs> oh, they get under your skin. <laughs> they do. You just want to meet them in the rink, but you can't do that in, like, a normal society. <laughs> like, you can't just be like, you, me, fight. Let's just get this through. <laughs> yeah. I don't have Harry's option of, like, organizing yeah. a secret militia to take out my least favorite teacher. I can't send her into the yeah. forest to be taken by the horsemen. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, one just, last thing I want to say about Umbridge is that Dolores literally means pain in Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I think it means JK, because I was just reading about um, etymology and Umbridge's name, said it meant something like sorrow yeah. or suffering or something. Yeah. And umbrage means to take offense. Like, to take umbrage with something means you get offended by it. Yeah. Which is just her character. <laughs> so, yeah. good naming, good etymology, as usual. So, that's my female villain. Why don't you tell me a bit about Queenie? Queenie Goldstein. Uh, I had her listed as a bit of a femme fatale, but I, I had complications with that uh, archetype for her, and I'll explain. So, um, first of all, a bit about Queenie. She was sworn okay. into Pukwudgie House at Ilvermorny, which is the house that represents the heart and favours healers. So it seems more like a Hufflepuff sort of house where the caring, nice people go. She had a desk job at mm -hmm. the Wand Permit Office at the Makusa. She was described by others as being a bombshell. She's a legilimens. Queenie doesn't consider, a doesn't consider herself a career girl as she spends most days making coffee or unjinxing the John, in her own words. Queen so she, she considers oh, herself like... um. Uh, a secretary, part-time person, but she's much more happy to be at the home, which is fine. But she knows what men want and how to charm and manipulate them. So mm -hmm. I thought of some examples of like when Jacob first meets her and she's yeah. like, don't worry, hon, most men think what you do when they meet you for the first time. Creepy, invasive, and weird. Yeah. But she's definitely, sorry, just in terms of her being like a career girl, yeah. she's definitely in that period of time where, like, women were just sort of starting to get into the actual workforce and, like, you either were a stay-at-home wife yeah. and mother or you were a career person. So it's interesting that she's got that dichotomy and she's chosen her side, I guess. Yeah. She sees uh, Tina as the career girl and she sees herself as more as someone that works for now to get along, but once she meets the good husband that supports her, she'll be happy to stay by his side, which is fine. There's another point in the movie in Fantastic Beasts yeah. in which uh, a male aura is, like, trying to – like hurt one of her friends or companions like trying to lead them away somewhere and she convinces him to let go of them and her to take over it by being like i'll tell mm -hmm. cecily about ruby so she knows all the social connections she knows how to manipulate people with uh threats and coercion and there was another part where she was escaping the makusa with um all of her compatriots 
in Newt's case and she was smelling them out. And her boss is like, why are you going home early? What's the deal? And she's like, oh, I've got lady business, lady health issues. And he like freaked out. So she knows how to manipulate her own uh, femininity to uh, coerce men. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> I've done that before. <laughs> I have done that on multiple occasions. Um, <laughs> we all have. Oh, it's it's so, when you have to deal with men who like hear the yeah. word feminine and are like, oh God, no, no. It's just so, so easy to use it to get out of stuff. Especially men that are older and they're like so uncomfortable around teenage girls. It's like, oh, I, c- I can't do sports today, so I've got like lady issues. And they're like, oh, okay, all right, just, you know, sit in the shade. <laughs> it's like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Queenie kind of fits neatly into the femme fatale mold of using enchantment or lying to manipulate men to do what she wants to do, especially because she uses a literal spell to coerce Jacob to continue dating her and kidnap him and take him overseas. And we've talked about that in the previous episode. <laughs> but she uses a love enchantment to convince Jacob to continue dating her. Yep. Now her turn to the dark side. Mm-hmm. So she turns to Grindelwald's side because she believes it will allow her to be freely in love with Jacob. But once Jacob makes it clear that he doesn't want this, Queenie goes to Grindelwald's side anyway. And it's unclear exactly why. There's speculation that it's because... She sees that it, eventually Jacob will change his mind and this will be a way for her to be, a, to be able to contribute to making a better world for uh, witches and wizards who are in love with muggles. Or that my theory is that she wants somewhere to belong because she's been, she feels like she's been abandoned by all her friends and family and she just wants to feel like she fits in somewhere. But it's, Probably it's a bit of both. Because, like, a bit of both. Like, I, she's kind of like fitting into the dumb blonde archetype, but she's also a legitimate, which is such a weird contradiction. Uh... <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, I mentioned that. It it literally doesn't make sense that she's as dumb as she is. Like, especially when we see her being so clever and manipulative, but then she's like, wait, you're reading everyone's mind. Why can't you tell when people are lying to you? Anyway, (laughs) let's not get into that again. Apparently, I've seen this plot hole explained away with uh, Queenie has a throwaway line in Fantastic Beasts where she's like, I always have trouble with uh, you Brits. It's the accent. She's talking about her legitimacy powers. And so people explain, oh, that's why she couldn't predict what Grindelwald and his followers were saying because they're European in their mind. So she, when she was trying to read their mind, she couldn't exactly interpret it. And I was like, I just, I don't, I'm sorry, but that's bullshit. <laughs> anyway. um, <laughs> That's stupid. If I'm, if I'm listening to somebody with like a really thick accent that I'm struggling to interpret, that doesn't mean that I 100%, it's not like they're speaking another language, just means that I'm missing some of what they're saying. Like, that's not how, accents don't mean you're speaking another language. Especially like British accents. Like, I mean, I know there's some very thick British accents out there. Like, some of our family members exhibit that, but. (laughs) <laughs> the fucking Newt and Grindelwald they just sound like posh British people the accents yeah. aren't that hard to decipher it's just like oh dear like oh okay also like Grindelwald's accent is like a bad American imitation of it, some sort of European accent yeah, it's not difficult to understand so, it's just anyway, bad <laughs> just another chance to drag Grindelwald Queenie continues to use her legitimacy powers to help Grindelwald manipulate people as basically like a right hand woman I looked up some of her character character traits. She's described as free spirited, kind hearted, mm-hmm. empathetic, and considered very brave. So these like uh, four, three qualities, three out of four, are feminine qualities: the free spiritedness, the kind heartedness. Another fun fact: Queenie's mm-hmm. wand has been described as sexy. That's like the prime description of her wand, which is weird. That is weird. I know. I looked at it's it. It's a wand. How it's sexy like can it be? It's got a seashell thing on the end, so it's like got a nice handle. I wouldn't say it was sexy. Um, then again, 
I'm not into once. <laughs> Queenie's outward appearance wouldn't suggest a femme fatale, in my opinion, because she's so like soft and pink and pretty mm-hmm. rather than dark and alluring and sexy and dominating. You know what I mean? Like there's that dichotomy where femme fatales are always in like darker colors, like yeah. dark reds and, and blacks and um, dark navies. And then like the pretty maiden types are in the pinks and the soft blues and the soft yellows and like the pastels. So mm-hmm. she, but she acts like a femme fatale though. So she manipulates men. She disarms people with her beauty and fits into the morally gray archetype that a femme fatale has. But I think what's interesting about Queenie is that a lot of people will sympathize her with her mm-hmm. because she's, because the way that she looks and the things that she does are cute, which isn't as interesting to me as a femme fatale stereotype, like Catwoman. Yeah. Say. So Catwoman blurs the line between villain, hero, and victim perfectly. Even when she's doing bad things, you feel like it's just, and you kind of root for her. Like, the ladies in Chicago were like, you know, they do bad things, like they murder people, mm-hmm. but he had it coming. <laughs> like, things like that. You like, Oh, Chicago the movie, not Chicago the city. <laughs> yeah, no, Chicago the, the musical. <laughs> like the Chicago <laughs> women, you know? Shout out to the Chicago ladies. Um, <laughs> Are willing to do. Bad you know how things. all the women in Chicago. <laughs> you know how all the women in Chicago Unlined. are evil and sexy. Um, but with Queenie, it's not like that. Unlike a classic yeah. femme fatale, Queenie doesn't know what she that doesn't know that she's bad. A lot of femme fatales have that knowledge. Like, you know, I know that I'm bad, and I know I'm doing wrong, but it feels so right, and all that sort of cute stuff. But like, and especially because she isn't clapping back against an abuser yeah. or a system that has victimized her. She's an abuser. And she is victimizing others and doesn't think that she's a bad person for doing so. So that's what I found, mm-hmm. why I found it hard to sort of firmly put her in the femme fatale category because she does, she sees herself as a good guy. She's more like a fanatic <laughs> than a femme fatale. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. There's a lot of contradictions. The first time we meet her, she is wearing her underwear though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a classic. That's pretty sexy. <laughs> yeah, like she does dress sexily for the time, but just purely her color palette had me thrown for a second. I was like, hmm. Mm. Although I'm trying to remember in the, the very, very final scene in Crimes of Grindelwald when she's uh, reading um, Credence's mind for Grindelwald, yeah, yeah. isn't she wearing darker clothes? Like, I think I noticed that because her palette's changed and now she's wearing dark clothes. Yeah, she does switch to darker clothes, so we might see more of a femme fatale classic look for her in later movies. Yeah, I'm interested to see if her if her aesthetic changes and if the portrayal of her in the movie changes in the next three films. Yeah, because right now she's a character full of contradictions. Like, she's a dumb blonde who's real ditzy and cute, but she's also a talented legilimens who can manipulate people emotionally and, and with their own thoughts. And, you know, she's think she's doing right and promoting peace and goodwill but she's mm-hmm. also working with criminals who <laughs> want a max exodus and stuff like that it's yeah yeah literally kill babies <laughs> yeah overall i think they could have done better to solidify her villain status um i think that like it's unfair to really classify her now as a villain because i think she's at the halfway point because in the first movie apparently even though we disagree with this, I think she was strong, like she was presented yeah. as she was meant to be a hero. She did bad things, in my opinion, but yeah, I can agree. Okay, she was a hero in the first movie, but now in the second movie, she's crossing the bridge. And by the time the third movie comes around, I think she'll completely solidify herself as a villain. And then fourth, fifth movie, she'll come back, or I don't know what'll happen. She might die off. Yeah, 
she'll either get worse and worse or she'll yeah. have a turnaround and come back and be a hero again. Um, but definitely for me, like, she's she's yeah. gone in the bin. She's, um, a, she's a villain now. And she needs, like, a proper redemption arc to get her way back because she's done bad things that you can't just gloss over because she's pretty and wears pink. So, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on Queenie? Because that was basically my gist of what Queenie was like. Um, I've both, mostly <laughs> been butting in with my thoughts as we've gone. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm quite, I interrupt. <laughs> I have opinions and I need to say them. Um, not really. You've mm. painted a really good picture of her. You've made some really good points. I feel like there was something I was going to say, but it might have just been that burning need to get out the fact that we meet her in her underwear, <laughs> which is pressing on my mind the entire time you're talking. <laughs> Yeah. If we're done with Umbridge and Queenie, then I think we should move on to some honourable mentions of other villainous uh, femmes throughout Harry Potter. Okay. What about Bellatrix? (laughs) Uh, Bellatrix, well, definitely a villain. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Some questions I had about her was like, is she more ruthless to prove herself? Is she seen as more terrifying because she is a woman? And why is her primary motivation for evil sexual? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you were talking earlier Mm. about like- the bitch character, the evil mother. Uh, and I think Umbridge definitely fits into that because mm. she's definitely someone who's like, hates children and has chosen her career instead of motherhood. Yeah. But Bellatrix kind of fits into that as well. Well, like, I don't think there's ever any, like, indication at all that she's interested in having a child. <laughs> don't talk to me about Cursed Child. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> it doesn't exist. I don't care. <laughs> But there's sorry. Um, there's something at like the beginning of the sixth book when like Narcissa is losing her mind over the fact that Draco is going to be in danger, and Bellatrix is like, he should be honored. I would be so happy if I had yeah. children. I'd like sacrifice no. them all to the Dark Lord or whatever. Like, okay, she's not a good. And mother. she specifically says, if I had sons as well, not if I had children. Oh, okay. So like, she's not even considering it's- the fact that she could have daughters. No. I feel like I'm making a point here. What is it? Yes. Oh, she's directly contrasted in the series Absolutely. with Molly Weasley, who's like, you know, the epitome of motherhood and nurturing, yeah. love, all that sort of bravery. She's awesome. Mm. Molly's the best. Yeah. So Bellatrix definitely fits that bitch archetype. <laughs> but she's also a little bit of a femme fatale because she's described as once being beautiful, but the years in Azkaban have harrowed her down. Now imagine what Bellatrix was like before Azkaban. I could definitely see her as a very much like mm. a femme fatale type when she was a young woman. Yeah. It's also yeah. it's also interesting that she's married because she is, of course, Bellatrix Black and she ends up Bellatrix Lestrange because she gets married to a guy called Rudolphus, I think. <laughs> he's, he's like Rudolph. Yeah, yeah, that's him. And he she never talks about him ever. <laughs> he's there in the book. He's still alive. Like, he's still alive at the end of book seven. He doesn't die. She just has a husband who's, like, completely absent from her arc, from, like, any specific mentions. He's just not there because she's so obsessed with Voldemort and this weird psychosexual fanatical relationship that she has with him. J.K. even made the decision to marry her to someone when she was purely expressed as this sexual desire with a human body towards Voldemort. <laughs> like, was it to further emphasize Bellatrix's evilness? Like, she's truly a fallen woman because she's dismaying her own marriage and betraying her own husband by just clearly wanting Voldemort's fucking dick? Like, is that the implication? Because, uh, one-eyed snake. 
Don't... Sorry. Oh, don't even. I hate that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Anyway, enough picturing Voldemort's dick. Um, <laughs> I think there's definitely an element of that. Like, part of what makes her evil is that she's not loyal to her husband and loving and subservient towards her husband. In terms of why she did it, I think it's kind of like plot and character. Mm. Like, she wanted Bellatrix to be part of the Black family, but not to have the Black surname, because yeah. then you get the reveal yeah. later after you've gotten to know Sirius. And then, like, she's interrelated to Narcissa and the whole family dynamic. Yeah, I just think, like, it was necessary for what Bellatrix mm. needed to be in the series to have her married. But then, like, JK didn't actually want to establish a relationship with the husband. Like, you could have just killed him <laughs> off, but yeah, I don't know. It's just, Bellatrix is such an interesting villain. Because <laughs> she's just pure hatred and spite and weird sexual energy that's so dark and yeah. gross. <laughs> and she's just, she she only acts through madness and violence. Mm. Like, she never has any compassionate acts or anything like that. She just mocks people in a crazy, maniacal way and lashes out with violence all the time. And fanaticism, like the, yeah, yeah, I don't want to call it love, the fanaticism mm. that drives her. Yeah. Another honourable mention I had was uh, Narcissa, Bellatrix's sister. Yeah. Love Narcissa. Yeah. I wrote down for her, prejudiced, pretty, and patient. She's interesting as well, because I'm trying to think, is she the only evil mother we have in the series? Oh, we've got Petunia, but Petunia's not an evil I mean, it's hard to define what Petunia really is. Petunia, yeah. She's abusive, definitely. I'd I'd put Petunia mm. in the category of villain, yeah. Like a more domestic villain. But again, she's like she's in the same sort of category as Umbridge, where she's mm. like that domestic personal sort of villain compared to the Voldemort Bellatrix, yeah. like I'm never gonna deal with a person like that kind of villain. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Narcissa was still allowed she like she was still described as being beautiful. But her internal hatred and vindictiveness uh, sort yeah. of marred her beauty and made her less beautiful. So, like, the way that her evilness was described as directly impacting her mm. own beauty is quite a feminine thing. Like, you never have that for, like... I mean, actually, no, JK does do that for Voldemort and for Sirius and things like that. Um, for Barty Crouch Jr., I believe, as well. Like, Harry, because Harry's got such bisexual energy. Whenever he sees anyone, he describes how handsome they are or how beautiful they are. And then if there's ever, like, a character that has yeah. hidden intentions or is, like, secretly evil, it always yeah. appears in their on their face in a flash and ruins their handsome features or their lovely features. So, actually, that's, that's not necessarily just about women for JK's writing as well. Yeah. That's, look, kudos to JK. She does that. Um, <laughs> she'll be, like, serious, like, God... God, he's so handsome, but you can I mean, see weird. all the trauma etched into the lines of his face. <laughs> and Narcissa as well. She's so beautiful, but she's constantly got her face yeah. twisted up in an awful <laughs> sneer because she's so That's full nice. of hate. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, like, mm. Narcissa isn't- is she- how evil is she? Like, she's obviously- she's obviously prejudiced, she's cruel, but yeah, she that's doesn't the thing. actively- besides emotional hurt, she doesn't actively go out to- threaten or hurt anyone. She's purely just out for protecting herself and the people that she loves. She's, she's like a pretty neutral sort of character. Yeah, it's arguable how evil she is. We never really see her like 
we never see her torturing anyone or killing anyone mm. or like actively participating in Voldemort's reign. But she's definitely passively participating in it. She's supportive of her husband, who's a Death Eater. She's mm. obviously supportive in protecting her son, who is a Death Eater. She's got Voldemort in her house. She's got Bellatrix mm. as her sister. Like, she's wrapped up in it. You can't just excuse those actions because, like, because we like her as a person and because she saved Harry that one time. Yeah. And she definitely swallows up that bigotry and spits it back out of people. Like, she calls Hermione and stuff filth when she confronts them, when she bumps into them at Madame Malcolm's in Sixth Book. Like, she's not innocent. She will, like, verbally throw shit at people, but she won't actually throw a punch at someone or a curse at someone. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, I don't imagine that she has a dark mark. No, not at all. It would taint her perfect pretty skin. <laughs> she think, I just think that she's too much of, like, a, a lady for that. She's like, no, I don't want to put, have that ugly thing on me. Mm. But she's definitely, like, supportive of Voldemort's regime, at least until it stops being of benefit to her and her family. So, yeah, did you have any other honourable mentions for the villainous ladies? Let's talk about Petunia. Yeah, she's an interesting one. I'm so glad you mentioned her, because I was just thinking that Narcissa was the only, like, evil mother that well, we I mean, saw. Petunia is similar to Narcissa, where she loves her own son, but um, Petunia's in a worse position than Narcissa, because Petunia was granted with the care of another son, her own nephew, but completely sh- shat on him, basically. Like, Narcissa was never in that situation. Mm-hmm. So that's why Petunia is seen as worse for me, yeah. definitely, because she was directly abusive to someone that was put in her care, and she was the only person that had the capacity to care for that child. So it was her responsibility to do everything that she could to yeah, definitely. You know, care for that child. It was her direct responsibility, and she neglected it. Yeah, spent years actively participating in the abuse and neglect of this child while being so nurturing and doting for her own son. Yeah, to the point at which it was, like, actively hurting him. The contrast there is really interesting. Mm. She's very intolerant, but I would say that she's very, (laughs) like, she's very deferential and that succorant word. Like, she's dependent and she's, like, actively seeking out Mm. Vernon Dursley, who's a very domineering, controlling person. We never see Petunia, like, defy him, except that one time. When he's like, um, I'm going to kick Harry out of the house because Dudley's been attacked by a Dementor and Petunia's like, no, he stays. That's the only time I think she ever actively Um, defies him. I was going to say too, her wickedness isn't just in words and neglect. She actively does try to hit Harry across the head and stuff like that. Like, it's not just verbal and emotional abuse. She does hit him and push him and shove him and stuff like that. It's physical as well. So that's different for a motherly abuser that we would commonly see. I'm thinking even just stuff like having Dudley sit yeah. inside eating ice cream like, and forcing Harry to go out into the garden in the middle of summer and weed yeah. for hours and hours on end and not give him yeah. enough food or anything. Like Harry could pass out in the garden and like roast out there in the sun for hours and have to be hospitalized because mm-hmm. he's so dehydrated. These are all things that could have easily happened because of the way that she mistreated him. That's abuse. Like, she's a bad person. Yeah, but what's interesting about her is that we do learn about her past and why she's so hateful towards Harry. So in that way, we get more sympathy for her than we do for Narcissa, because we learn why she's like this. But even in her past, Petunia's very, you know, (laughs) she's very bossy and spiteful and jealous and she internalizes all that and just turns it into hate and prejudice. 
mm-hmm. which is she always had the traits yeah. that would one day lead to her becoming like a villain which is what i'm calling her we don't see like you know a completely a complete personality shift as a result of trauma or something like that that would explain away the way she is we just see the origins of it yeah which is sad it was always sad for me like hearing the story of petunia and lily because petunia was the older sister it always really struck me hard because, like, older sisters should look out for their little sisters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Petunia didn't do that. She was always – I mean, you could argue that Petunia was when, – when she was saying to Lily, don't be such a freak, she was worried that Lily would be targeted or made fun of. And so Petunia was trying to suppress that part, part of her. But it was also – it was coming from jealousy. Petunia was jealous that Lily was special and beloved. And so mm-hmm. it was from a, a place of vindictiveness that Petunia yeah. harassed her sister and ignored her and thought that she was a freak and dislocated herself from her sister's life. So, yeah, that always that always gets hard for me. It's so sad. Yeah. All right, well, I've been Jem, and I'm disgusted by the concept of a Phil Fatale host. <laughs> I've been Rhea, and I hope my every word and action leads to the ultimate destruction of the male. Thanks for listening to Podcast 9 and 3 Quarters. This show is written and edited by Rhea and Jem. You can send us an email at 9andthreequarterspodcast at gmail.com, find us on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at podcast9andthreequarters, or talk to us separately on Twitter. Rhea is at smashmouthria, and me, Jem, is at gem underscore just gem. Please feel free to send us theories or ask us questions, and bombard us with so many messages that we go mad and run away to a hut on a rock in the middle of the sea just to avoid them. Our logo art is by Winged Corgi. Find more of her art at wingedcorgi.tumblr.com. This week's intro music was Professor Umbridge by Nicholas Hooper, and our outro music was Hedwig's theme by John Williams. You hear from us again in two weeks' time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.